Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I've spent more of my life than most people I know immersed by choice in what my guest today would call scripture. I was never much of a Roman Catholic, in spite of being dragged weekly to church until I was about 13 and could no longer be dragged, and in my boredom, sometimes believing I saw the statue of Jesus moving on the cross. But in late adulthood, the need for spiritual meaning gripped me tight and wouldn't let go. It led first into Judaism and Jerusalem, and then for the past couple of decades, mostly to Buddhist study and practice. But I'm as troubled as all the Enlightenment thinkers I know by scripture-thumping orthodoxy and intolerance of any kind, troubled also watching my wife Demet's country, Turkey, split between retrograde, homophobic, and misogynistic Islamism on the one hand, and intractable secular nationalism on the other. Moses and I don't have much in common, but like him, I get tongue-tied talking about these things. Religious or spiritual or scriptural ideas and practices can be so essential and become so problematic at the same time. My guest today is Karen Armstrong. On these subjects, she doesn't get tongue-tied. She's one of the clearest and most nuanced thinkers I know of on God, religion, and scripture, author of The Spiral Staircase and The Case for God, recipient of the TED Prize, and co-creator of the Interfaith Charter for Compassion. Her new book is called The Lost Art of Scripture, and I'm so happy it brings her to think again. Thank you. We should talk a little bit about the word scripture and what your definition of scripture is in general and in this book, because I know for a lot of Americans, for my, myself included, like when we hear that, our mind immediately goes to like evangelicals. We don't have the same idea of it as, as you're describing here. Well, scripture, of course, implies a written text. Right. And that is difficult because for most of its history, scripture has been a performative art. It was always sung or danced to in ritual and tied up with music. So reading scripture, neat as it were, is right. rather like reading the libretto of an opera. Half of it is missing. And scripture also implies something rather prohibitive. People seem to think scripture says, and therefore we have to do what scripture says and believe what scripture says. Right. Whereas I found in my researches, looking at scriptures throughout the religious world, not only in Judaism, Christianity and Islam, but in Buddhism, in Sikhism, and in the Chinese scriptures, Confucianism and Taoism, scripture does not tell you what to believe. You mentioned Moses just now, and yes. Moses, who is the stammerer. He has a speech impediment, and he says to God, look, why? Why have you chosen me? No one can understand a word I say. And God says, well, don't worry about that. Your brother Aaron is a clear speaker, and he will speak for you. Right. So what that means is that we're only getting God's word at second hand, as it were. And we have to wonder how much Aaron has been able to hear of Moses himself. And yet God prefers Moses the stammerer to Aaron, who is guilty of the archetypal act of idolatry in the Bible when he gets people mm. to worship the golden calf. So clarity and clear doctrines, clear teaching is not what scripture does, because God the ultimate is unknowable. Right. And I think it's interesting that in Judaism, the most popular image of God is in the first chapter of Ezekiel, 
where you cannot make out what God is. You cannot see anything clearly. And it leaves Ezekiel the prophet completely divided between extreme sorrow and rage. The man has just been deported forcibly from his homeland and he's stuck in Babylonia. And yet he says it tastes as sweet as honey. So the whole experience of God is that God is not knowable and God defies human categories. And scriptures throughout all the religions makes it clear. Taoism, for example, mm. the Tao Te Ching begins, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. That is, if you can say what the Tao is, that is not the Tao. God is beyond human speech. I very much enjoy Taoism, and that's also what drew me to, well, I would say back into, but I, we re, I really had no Jewish training. My dad's side of the family is, is Jewish. Apparently, a great-grandfather was a Talmudic scholar before he became a shoemaker in Philadelphia. But the sort of insistence on the unknowability of God, that seemed different to me from the Christian iconography I was raised with. Of course, there's mystery as well and uncertainty and the unknown in Christian scripture. But by the time it got to me, it seemed much more focused on telling us definitively what was the case. Yes, I think that's, that is true. And I think that happened in the West at the time of the Reformation, when Europe was un undergoing a major change. We were becoming a much more rational society. We were mm. soon to have the scientific revolution, which would change the world. And so people were concentrating very much on analytical thought. And you remember, of course, that the reformers, the Protestant reformers, thought that if you could just give people the scripture, they didn't need all this, these popes and councils, and they'd have all the answers in scripture. But then they discovered that they couldn't agree about what scripture said. They couldn't agree on such basic matters as the Eucharist, for example. And so from the very beginning, the movement was split. And Luther said in his revolutionary way, a poor man with the scripture can tell us more about God than any bishop or pope. But then came the peasants' revolt, where the peasants in southern Germany were rising up against the aristocracy. And Luther was not on their side. He told them that they, had to, they just got to shape up and turn the other cheek, quoting scripture. But the peasants had the temerity to answer back and quote scripture too, and said that Christ had made all men free. Mm -hmm. Now, this changed Luther's mind. And after that, he, and not only the Protestant reformers, but also the Catholic leaders, said that ordinary people could not read scripture. They had to come to scripture through catechisms, which gave them the correct doctrines and the spectacles through which they would look at scripture. Now, take God, for example. At eight years old, I learned my Catholic catechism, and the question was, what is God? And quick as a flash, I answered in one sentence, God is the supreme spirit who alone exists of himself and is infinite in all perfections. <laughs> now, I have to say at eight, that didn't grab me much, but I now think it's incorrect. God is not a spirit, and God does not exist, Thomas Aquinas had said. God is not one of the things that exist. God is being itself, esse mm. se ipsum. So we're looking at the divine through these dry catechisms, and we're right. looking at scripture through the lens of the catechisms, and we don't get that sense. In the book, you go into 
scripture's evolution and history in different times and places. And it's as if we're talking about some, I don't want to say pure, but some kind of, in a sense, pure essence of scripture that has different appearances in different times and places, and that somehow gets distorted, misunderstood, interfered with at times through politics and through power relations. But do you, do you think it's separable like that? I mean, I know what my relationship is specifically to where I have a sense of my own relationship to the scripture and practices that are meaningful to me in, say, Theravadan Buddhism. But when I look at the history, I can't separate those two things. I can't separate the strife and the politics and the power relations from the scripture. Yeah, because scripture, of course, has been abused and very much used by politicians, by rulers, by bishops and popes. But in fact, scripture does not have, as I say, a clear message. And you're not meant to go back to the beginning, as the reformers said, and what does scripture say at the beginning of time and stick to that. Right. There's a lot of that going on, say, in the United States. You've got fundamentalists who want to go right back to the beginning and they want to restore the old Hebraic legislation, including the stoning of disobedient children. Right. And in Saudi Arabia, you've got a form of Islam that tries to go back to the mores and customs of the seventh century. Well, we're not men and women of the seventh century. And scripture was always an inventive art. You mm. went to scripture and you made something new and made it apply to your situation now, not what people said yesterday or last year. One of my favorite philosophers and mystics is the Sufi Muslim philosopher Ibn al-Arabi, 12th century. And he said that every time you recite the Quran, it should mean something different to mm. you. And if it's not meaning something different, you're not reciting it correctly because you're in this unique situation here and now. And God has a message for you here and now. The rabbis who also, after they lost the temple, when the Romans destroyed their temple, this essence of Hebraic spirituality in the year 70, they couldn't read the old Hebrew text in the same way anymore. Right, And so they developed what they called midrash, which comes from the verb darash, which means to go in search of something. And it was utterly inventive. Someone would come up and ask a rabbi a question and they would take a, a sentence from one of the prophets, a sentence from one of the Psalms, a sentence from the book of Genesis, string them all together and make them say something entirely new. Tell me again the name, the word for that. The chaining together of disparate... A horoz. Horoz, right, right, right. A right. horoz, a chain. Yeah. And the person who invented this was Rabbi Akiva, who was right. killed by the Romans in the early second century. And there's a story about him that the fame of his extraordinary teaching reached heaven and Moses got to hear about it. <laughs> right. So Moses was curious and he wanted to find out what was going on. So he came down to earth and joined Rabbi Akiva's scripture class and sat in the back row among the other students and found to his intense embarrassment that he couldn't understand a word of the Torah that Rabbi Akiva was explaining, the Torah that had been revealed to him, to Moses on Mount Sinai. But mm. instead of being angry, he goes back smiling, shaking his head rather like a proud father saying, my children have defeated me. In other words, they've gone on, they've moved on. 
And one rabbi put it this way. He said, that which is not revealed to Moses was revealed to Rabbi Akiva and his generation. Because scripture, every time a student reads scripture, he should find something new in it. Right. Because the revelation is not something confined to the distant past. It occurs every time a student confronts the sacred text. And in some of the early Talmud books, they would leave a page free for the student to add his own mm. insights. And if he didn't do that, the revelation would not be complete because every Jew has the job of taking it further. So scripture is an inventive art. It's not prohibitive. The way it looks to me is that a community allowing itself that kind of interpretive freedom mm. with scripture and treating scripture in that way. What you're saying is that that's what scripture is, right? That it is meant to be interpreted. It is meant to be open-ended. It is meant to be renewed, you know, in the breath of every and the life of every individual who encounters it. And what I see when I look at the history, not to kind of harp on this, is more like movements of conservatism or, yes. or liberalism. I mean, that you get an opening and a closing of that idea of what scripture is supposed to be. Yes, because human beings have a wonderful way of fouling things up. And they can take something, a wonderful idea like Midrash, and put the kibosh on it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, because people like control and also they like certainty. And they like to have both feet on the ground and they like to know exactly what God is and what God does. But this is not the message of Scripture. It's supposed to be inventive. This is just wretched human nature. So the best of Scripture or what Scripture is supposed to be, as you're describing it, it feels like coupled with ritual... It's a kind of a tool or a technology or I don't know if that's the right word, but a process for putting us into a different state of mind, a different state of heart. And what's interesting is that that state of mind and heart, it tends toward the word that I was not familiar with before, kenosis, which is stepping outside of the self. It tends, therefore, toward compassion and awareness of others. But it takes different forms in different times and places, like what Greek tragedy does to people who watch it. Uh, that word huzun, which I know from Turkish as huzun, I don't know how it's pronounced in Arabic, yes. but what the Quran does, but then what might happen to you in a Christian meditation, they have slightly different flavors. Let's talk about what they do to people. First of all, what they do is introduce us, if they're read correctly, to transcendence, because this is part of the human experience. We all have had moments when we're touched deeply within mm. and lifted momentarily beyond ourselves. And this can happen in many, many walks of life, in sport even. Uh, people get a great sense of ecstasy, a stepping outside of the self. Mm. So scripture supposed to put us into relationship with the transcendence that we call God sometimes or Brahman or Tao, but it's also asking us to do something. It's not just about cultivating a nice, warm, spiritual glow between you and the divine. Scripture has a message. In the monotheisms, it's very concerned about justice. The prophets of Israel, for example, had no time for people who said their prayers nicely in the temple and attended all the temple rituals, but neglected the plight of the poor and the oppressed in their society right. and didn't take to task the rulers who were oppressing them and committing terrible war crimes. They lambasted against that. Jesus made it clear, and Jesus it was deeply Jewish, 
that it's not the people who call him Lord, Lord in prayer who will be come into the kingdom, mm. but those who have, he said, I was hungry, you gave me to eat. Thirsty, mm. you gave me to drink. Sick, naked and in prison and you visited me. Going out to help people. So and no place for piety as opposed to... It's not just about it's right. not just about you and your God and a nice warm glow inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It gives you a message. The Quran, the basic message of the Quran is that it's wrong to build a private fortune and good to share your wealth equally and fairly and create a just society where vulnerable people are treated with respect. That's mm. what it says again and again. It's a mandate. And Buddhism, there's a nice story about the Buddha that after he'd achieved enlightenment, the inconvenient thought occurred to him that perhaps he should tell other people about how he'd done this. And he thought about it for a while. He said, no, I'm not going to do this. You know, this is a very difficult message. And people are are going to get very discouraged. (laughs) I'm not going to do it. At which point, Brahma, the god in the highest of heavens, gave a terrible cry. And he descended to earth and he said, then the world is lost. The Mm. world will be utterly lost. Mm. And he knelt, the God kneels before the enlightened man. And he says, Lord, look at the world. And it says that the Buddha looked at the world with the eye of a Buddha and he saw the pain all throughout the world. And he spent the next 40 years of his life tramping around the villages and towns of India, engaging with people and helping them to deal with their pain. And he told his monks to do the same. He said, after you've achieved enlightenment, you must go back to the marketplace, to the mess of human affairs and be active in assuaging this suffering that we see all around us. So that is the mandate. Scripture is giving us a job to do. And it's very often in our rather self-centered world, we don't do it. In London, for example, my Mm. hometown, which is a, a very rich city. 25% of the population of London are living in poverty. And we've got record numbers of people now sleeping on the street. But do I hear the Archbishop of Canterbury or indeed the chief rabbi coming out and saying things? No, I don't. This is what we should be doing. So this is interesting. And I think about this in the context of the split between Theravada and Mahayana in Buddhism, which you write about in the book. As you put it, the original split... one part of it has to do with a critique of the Arahant, which is a figure within yes. Theravada that has has achieved a, a certain level of enlightenment, not total Buddhahood, and who then retreats within him or herself. And that critique kind of remains. Mahayana tends to still characterize itself as more outward focused and compassionate in the person of the Dalai Lama. And sometimes Theravada is critiqued for being too self-centered. But I I often see that as a political split that is rooted to some extent in a misunderstanding. And I think that many of the Theravadan practices are about a process that moves from self-compassion toward outward compassion. And that if that transformation takes place, as opposed to some sort of pious mandate to go out and be Mm -hmm. compassionate to people, that actually that's where it's meant to lead. Well, yes, they would say that you go out to the world after achieving enlightenment, Mm. which means that you've left the self and ego behind so that you will then go forth and and act, it should be, in a selfless way. Now, the Confucians, however, uh, the new Confucians would go further. They would say that this kind of compassionate action 
is a way to achieve enlightenment. Outward in, right? Uh, you, yes. You do, the, do the act and then it yeah, becomes... Yes, do the act because that is also a way of getting rid of the ego, the golden rule, first enunciated in a written form by Confucius himself. Do not impose on others what you yourself do not desire, which means that all day and every day, said Confucius, uh, not just when you feel like it, you look into your own heart, discover what gives you pain, and then refuse it under any circumstance whatsoever to inflict that pain on anybody else. Right. So it demands a selflessness. But you also, the Confucians, I often think I could be a Confucian. I like this idea so much. They say your compassion must be continually extended in a series of concentric circles. You have to begin with yourself and your own family because it's no good going out to save the world if your own family is in disarray and unhappy. And the family is the school of compassion. It's the way you learn how to treat people with absolute respect. But then you must move out, first of all, to the city in which you're living. So you should be concerned if people are living rough on the streets. Right. Then you go out to the, your whole country and you look at the state of your nation, your country, and finally to the whole world. And the Chinese were enunciating this at a time when they didn't know how large the world was. Uh, but now we do, and our world has shrunk. And we're often just so focused on our own nation and our own affairs that we are deaf, perhaps, to the pain we see in the world. I don't know if you do this in the United States, but in Britain, when something upsetting is about to be shown on the news, the newscaster will say, a warning, you may find this upsetting. And that gives you a chance to go and make a cup of tea or switch channels, anything, so as not to have this disturbing, upsetting image. But we must let ourselves be upset. Let that pain worry us is what I think scripture at its best is saying. Where I get tangled up with, you know, if I think about Confucianism, I'm skeptical of the outward forms of compassion, which can can easily become hypocrisy. I don't like mm. to perform action in the world that doesn't feel like it's authentic to me, which is not to say that I'm going to sit in total indifference as terrible things are happening around me. But I see and I hear and I feel like many people are mouthing kind of compassionate pieties about, uh, and there are many people who are not, you know, many, many selfish people behaving selfishly as well. I appreciate the sequence from self to family to other. I wonder though, you know, in the kind of Confucianism that you're talking about, would it be, you'd be practicing all those simultaneously probably, right? It's not like you can't wait yes. 30 oh, years to become... No, no. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> indeed. And you've got to keep extending your sympathies. Now, Confucianism, of course, had its ups and downs like every other re religious faith. But interestingly, there's a group now of philosophers in China who are all very well read in the modern philosophy and science. They call themselves the New Confucians. Okay. And they say that uh, what they could bring from their scriptures to the world is a concern for the environment, a mm. concern for the state of our planet, which is also very, very strong in both Indian and Chinese scripture. So does that have a drop of Taoism in it in terms of a sense yes. of harmony with nature, nature uh, and the way uh, things uh, are? And also from the first, uh, in India, for example, from the very, very beginning, the Aryan peoples, about 1500 BCE, were very concerned about the fragility 
of the cosmic system. Mm. They felt it needed support. And they created rituals to help support the gods whom they believed were holding things together. Now, of mm. course, these rituals had no scientific potency, but what they did was create an attitude an attitude of reverence for the cosmos, for the world, which we've obviously lost and we see it as a resource in a sense. And the Confucians the same. They said that heaven, their highest god, heaven, which can also be translated nature and humanity, form a sacred triad and must work together constantly so that you must be in tune both with the environment and with society. And this is something that both these mandates that scripture gives us, and I'm not saying that people are always doing it right, but they give us two mandates that are very important for our world. First of all, scripture should inspire us with a, a worry about inequality. And we're looking at a very, very unequal world and it's causing great dismay. And the second is, of course, the planet, the environment. Right. Right. at the state of the planet. So scripture is relevant, but it should make us inventive, as I said earlier, not just applying things in a kind of automatic or do-goodery way that's full of ego, but finding, really going deeply into the question and trying to find a new solution. Practices rooted in scripture at their best are helping people achieve kenosis, helping people achieve a sense of the kind of oneness and interconnectedness of, of all things. This is the transcendent spiritual experience in many forms, you know, that manifests in many different forms, this sense of interconnectedness. But each of these practices and scriptures is rooted in a particular cultural and historical particularity and, and moment. And in the going back and forth, I think things get confusing. Like I see people resisting now the idea of oneness and connectedness as some sort of floppy hippie fantasy or whatever, because it feels in contradistinction to their sense of individuality, place and culture. This is hard to do. It's not something that, you know, you're just going to be a, a wonderful, saintly person doing good and effectively in the world. It's a long process and it requires a degree of selflessness. And not many people achieve that. When you come up against it, when you meet a selfless person, you know there's something special has happened. So constantly looking at me, me, me and my state of mind and neglecting the rest of the world, which is in such a terrible state at the moment. I guess what I'm asking, though, is like, is it possible religious, spiritual practice, scripture, each has such a specific language and place and location? Mm. Do you see a way of or a form of practice that's outside of that? I'm curious because of your like ecumenical studies and interests in kind of compassion as it manifests in different religions. Can practice exist outside of specific named communities? And, uh, if, I, and if not, how does it then transcend them for good or for real, you know? Well, we have to work with what we've got. And yeah. we're made by our, the community in which we are deeply affected by the particular nation into which we're born, the particular town in which we're born, the particular religions in which we were brought up. So there's always going to be varieties. There's not going to be one single way. But the issue is always on ecstasy, stepping aside from self. 
And that's hard to do. We are deeply selfish people. And that's why you achieve an ecstasy when you leave that troublesome self behind. Mm. And it's a lifetime's job. You can't just say, now from this day forth, I'm going to be without ego, because ego has an inconvenient habit of popping up. So it's, it's a constant quest. I think that idea of quest is important. Search that you haven't arrived that you haven't, unless you're a particular person like the Buddha, for example, mm-hmm. you haven't arrived at perfection. But the scriptures also show the complete human being, the Buddha, for example, an example of what a human being can be. For Christians, that's Jesus, that there's a particular way of being a human being, a Confucian way of being a human being, a Taoist way, a Jewish way. And these ways would all be particular because we've all had different histories. We've all got different hang-ups. We've all got different faults and failings with which we struggle all our lives, probably till our dying day. So it's not telling us what we have to do or it isn't giving us a clear message, but it asks us to just consider the divine every day and to move ourselves forward. Relatedly, I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about the role of confusion and disorientation in spiritual practice. You know, the I think about the way you describe God as manifesting during the time of the Babylonian exile in the complex and disturbing visions of Ezekiel, for example, or in the idea of Huzun, the idea of breaking your heart open, you know, that I think also happens when we engage with Greek tragedy, the idea that your heart is broken open and you're left in, a, in pieces yes. that you then sort of need to put back together in a different way. Yes, but in Greek tragedy, as you say, the chorus would turn to the audience when they were watching someone like Oedipus going through his terrible suffering. And he'd say, now weep, weep for Oedipus. And the Greeks did weep. They didn't just wipe an embarrassed tear from the corner of their eye. They wept aloud because the Greeks believed that weeping together creates a bond between people. Mm. And for that moment, your heart has been broken. Now Mm. you'll go home and you'll forget, but that experience will remain. It's an incremental thing that if you know how to use these moments of compassion, will build slowly. And similarly, the rituals, the recitation of the Quran, Huzun, which brings forth a sense of sorrow and sadness Mm. uh, when the Quran is recited, not when it's read as a printed work, but recited in that way, that gives you an openness, just as the ritual prostrations where you put your head on the ground several times a day and orient yourself in the direction of Mecca. Mm -hmm. It means that you have to interrupt your activities during the day and remind yourself where you're really heading. And of course, the prostrations, when the Prophet Muhammad told the first Muslims to do this, were deeply offensive to his fellow Qurayshis, his fellow tribesmen, Mm. who felt it was very demeaning to grovel on the ground like a slave. But in the very first of the revelations of the Quran, God says, now bow your head to the ground and get rid of all this prancing, preening ego that's constantly strutting around, as we all do it, and to draw attention to ourselves. These bodily practices, I think, Mm -hmm. are very, very important. And, And neurophysicists tell us that we often learn more from our bodies than we realize. I like the left brain, right brain distinction that you make and think it's relevant here as well that, you know, that these practices are taking us out 
or subverting in some way the left brain tendency to systematize and control. And essentially the egos need to control and organize and name and describe the world. And in pushing us into the right brain, related to what you were saying about bowing, about prostration, how do I want to put this? It's shaking loose the suffering or shaking loose some of the suffering that comes from the arrogance of thinking that we can control everything and make sense of everything. And one of the things that the right brain does is see connections between things. It sees an interconnected whole, how things... And then in the left brain, you analyze and split things up. And we're very left brain in our society. In Britain, for example, certainly children are encouraged to do the sciences at school rather than the humanities, Mm. which are more right brain, because that's what we need in our technological world. Our use of mobile phones, for example, we're never quite in the moment. Mm. You're walking down a country lane and you're chatting to somebody in the office, as it were, whereas you have to be in the moment now, according to scripture. You have this precious moment and it's unique. I think of it like it's, in fact, very tiring, these efforts that we make unconsciously often to live in this way, to live in the left brain way. It's, it can be very, very yes. exhausting, and it generates a great deal of what you might call the plaque uh, yes. of suffering that can only be kind of sh- shaken free through these kind of dramatic or ritual practices, because otherwise we don't even know it's there. We're just no. kind of carrying the burden of our own ego. And one of the things that the right brain does when it sees connections between things, it's also the home of our sense of justice because Mm. we see that we must treat others as ourselves, uh, that we seize the connection between people. And we don't sort of turn off our TV screens when we see suffering. We let it affect us because we are connected. We are connected. Maybe because that suffering that we carry around unacknowledged in ourselves at all Mm. time due to the closed fist of the ego is everybody's suffering. But we don't know. We don't know it. We're not even aware of it in ourselves. So when we become aware of it in ourselves, then perhaps we can become aware of it in others. Yes. And I, I think at its best, scripture should break our hearts in a sense that we feel the sorrow of the world. We feel our own sorrow and mm. own it and mm. realize that other people are also in pain. Uh, but of course, scripture, these are human artifacts. And people will be saying, yeah, but that's OK. But there's quite a lot of violence in scripture, too. I was a nun as a young woman. Yes. And we used to chant the Psalms in in, in the office in Latin. We'd go through the Psalter every week and Benedictine monks would do the same. And that was fine. And then the Vatican Council came along and said, we must now do it in English. And some of the nuns were delighted about this. I knew the Latin and I foresaw trouble ahead. And if you can imagine a room, a chapel full, about 80 or 90 British, very temperate, controlled, uptight nuns chanting politely, oh God, smash their teeth in their mouths, (laughs) because there's a lot of violence in the Psalms as well. Well, we did just that. We just, the absurdity of the the situation uh, really sort of got to us. And the only way we could continue doing it was to just chant it as though and not take notice of the sense anymore. 
I think that's what we've got to remember. We are not all Buddhas. We're not all saints. There okay. are times when we'd all like to smash someone's teeth in, in, in their mouths if we, if we had the chance. That is us. Mm. We human beings have great potential in us, but we are also violent, a violent species. We kill our own kind. Yeah. You know, we talk about evil, and in the Christian world, anyway, they've sort of objectified this, and they talk about Satan or the devil. But we are evil. Uh, we have evil potential within us, and we have to take that into ourselves. So when we're chanting that stuff, as we did in the comment, really what we were doing is standing, not just in our own piety, sort of letting ourselves identify with the psalm, but as humanity, as flawed humanity that is capable of wonderful generosity and brilliance, but also capable of inflicting pain. Indeed, it's my understanding of vipassana, the insight practices within Theravada Buddhism, mm. that part of what you're doing, part of that, that practice, part of those processes is about acknowledging, recognizing, seeing all of those forces within yourself yes. and that you don't come to freedom by abandoning them in some way. You come to freedom by, by seeing and standing in relation to them in a different way and watching those dharmic forces kind of move through you. And you have to have compassion for yourself sometimes. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, because uh, we, we all kind of suffer. Uh, but I think of the rabbis, too, who talked about the evil inclination. Hatson Hara, right? Yes. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, and they noticed that on the last day of creation, where instead of just saying, God looking at what he'd made that day and saying, it is good, mm. on the last day of creation, when he'd created humanity, he said, that is very good. And mm. the rabbi said, why? Why did he say very good? And they said, because on that day in creating humanity, God created the evil inclination mm. because we, are, we alone are evil. What is the evil inclination good? Asked the rabbis. Yes, they said, because without it, a man would not marry a wife or engage in trade. The sexual impulse mm. is great, <laughs> but it can go horribly wrong. Mm. We can abuse it and inflict great pain and suffering with it too. And trade, which the rabbis were very keyed on, requires you to do down your, you have to compete with your, with your rivals and that right. encourages. And so good and evil are mingled together, I think, and they're mingled together in us. And we have somehow to sort of acknowledge that, that we're not going to, and most of us, end up like a Buddha, but we can just accept the fact, be aware of it, not give in to it, but realize that we all have evil potential. The idea of growth toward compassion, toward being a better person, has to include compassion for those imperfections within us at every point and for yes. the fact that we can never fully realize all of those aspirations. You just pick yourself up after you've behaved badly or <laughs> wrongly and say, now we go, we go on. So in the interest of jogging ourselves out of the left brain, I want to do something that I've been doing lately on the show. Um, I told you a little bit about it before we started, but I'll also tell the audience. I'm using a deck of cards that was created mm -hmm. in 1975 by the musician Brian Eno and the artist Peter Schmidt, and they're called Oblique Strategies. And they are what they sound like. They are oblique strategies for moving in a different direction. 
So we have to take them non-literally and wherever they take the conversation, that's where we have to go. We don't get a do-over. So whichever one comes up, however weird, that's what we have to use, okay? Okay. okay. All right, okay, cool. Um, if you were here, I'd have you pick a card, but you're in Rhode Island, so I will do it. I'll have to do it. Here we go. Can you read it to me? Question the heroic approach. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, the heroic approach means that you are willing to risk all, but you could be doing it to be regarded as a hero, to be revered as a hero, Mm. uh, to be delighted with yourself as a hero. And so when you do a heroic act, we are so constructed that there's always some nasty little bit of us, however selfless uh, that act may be, Mm. that is saying, now just look at me and how terrific I am. And we should be looking at that. And also, don't expect other people to be heroic because everybody has their own vulnerabilities and one has to respect that. I guess that's that that goes back a little bit to the kind of conundrum that I was talking about before, which can can result in paralysis. Like if you are concerned about ego, if you are concerned about hubris, Mm -hmm. taking grand altruistic action in the world can be difficult, can feel risky, can feel like you're you won't necessarily know the difference between those things. I don't know. How do you think about how one can reliably go about analyzing one's own motivations, you know, and and knowing when it's about some attempt at heroism or where it's really coming from? I think a sense of humor is a good one. Because, we, you know, when we put ourselves in a heroic pose, we can look quite absurd. <laughs> so to see oneself when you want to do something heroic as breaking new ground, just have a little smile at yourself and look at your puny little self that will drag you down to earth again. The recognition of mortality is helpful as well. Mortality and vulnerability. <laughs> a heroic action, if you could just get swept away with being heroic, you could make some fearful mistakes along the way. It could mean you trample on other people, perhaps, or indeed injure yourself, injure yourself in terms of pride and hubris. And also, I think it's interesting and, you know, kind of a whole nother can of worms in some ways, the way that acts of compassion and connectedness could unfold, I think, over the course of an entire life in moment to moment interactions locally. I mean, now we see on the news and we are a globally interconnected world. And for sure, I understand what you're saying in terms of the ethical mandate or responsibility to care about what's going on elsewhere. But I also think that a fully valuable life could be invested in acts of local compassion. Oh, yes. Yes, I think so. Uh, And and don't, otherwise you could just get so worried about the situation, say in Turkey or Syria, for example, that you're not stepping over the people sleeping in your own street and realizing that they too are suffering and that it's not just in other parts of the world. It's perhaps more interesting to be concerned about things far away and not looking at what's happening perhaps in your own family. Because, I mean, every every human has different capacities and we yes. also, in a sense, have different missions in, in this regard, I would say. Also, a sense of humor, I think, is good. Laugh at yourself a bit. Hmm. Because very often when you put yourself in a sort of, I'm doing something, you look absurd. You can see that little puny self of yours, which you're trying to inflate uh, hmm. by doing something spectacular. 
you're just going to trip over yourself and you remember your smallness, frailty and absurdity. We are absurd creatures. <laughs> um, we shouldn't take ourselves always too seriously or cast ourselves in the leading role. I do love Buddhism for that because even though many of the other practices and, and religions do tend toward kenosis, it's the most explicit that I, mm. I, I know of about the contingent nature of self. Yes, I think this. I think this is absolutely true, and uh, I, and it's also very good on how to get out of it. It gives yes. you it, it gives you a method, gives you various methods that you can study and learn and learn from. I think that's it's very very practical, which I like. For you, what you know at this point, what does spiritual practice consist of? I assume it in part consists of acting with compassion in the world, in so far as one can. But for me. I can't meditate. As I said earlier, I was a nun, and for years I was pushed into a form of meditation that just wasn't right for me. And it left me with a sort of real dread of meditation. <laughs> I, you know, when we have five minutes silence, I say, no, no, no. But for me, it's my study. I'm at my desk studying mm. this mm. stuff from nine in the morning until six at night. It's mm. a job. Mm. And my early books were very skeptical. I'd had a bad religious experience and I was angry. And they were very clever books, but superficial. But it changed. I encountered a footnote in a big, fat, three-volume history of Islam. Mm. And the footnote was quoting the great Islamist Louis Massignon, who said that the historian of religion, which is what I was trying to do, cannot look at the spiritualities of the past from the vantage point of modern enlightenment, scientific enlightenment. Mm. You must, he said, in a scholarly way, recreate and research the circumstances in which that spirituality developed. What was going on economically, politically, environmentally, socially? And keep asking yourself, but why? And not leaving that until you can imagine yourself, if you were in that situation, mm. would do the same. In this way, he said, and this is the rub, you will broaden your horizons and make a space for the other in your mind and heart. And mm. he called this the science of compassion, a form of knowledge, sciencia knowledge, that comes by feeling with the other and putting the self aside. And that's what I, you see, when I wrote a biography of the Prophet Muhammad, for example, I had to imagine the hell of 7th century Arabia in which he was operating. And, and unless, until I could really do that, I would not grasp the essence of the prophet. And that meant that I had continually to leave clever, over-educated Karim <laughs> behind and put myself, leaving the self behind. Mm. And I would get little moments of ecstasy, ecstasy, because I was, in, I am stepping outside the self. And for me, that is my spirituality. Not that I'm sitting in rhapsodic ecstasy all day. I, I, never get, I never get a book written. But just little moments that take you out of yourself, your own self-centered self, and putting yourself in the shoes of others. People who lived long ago, people who lived in an entirely different world, making that attempt to step outside the self. For me, that... That is very rem strongly reminiscent of a kind of idealized notion I had, I think, of the Talmudic scholars of old, the Hasidic mm. scholars mm. of old. When I was coming to Judaism as a younger person, the, 
because I guess I came into those mysteries through the experience of kenosis that came from literature. So yes. reading reading Dostoevsky, yes. you know, for example, and then understanding that like the people of the book in my ideal of what I what I would like them to be, we're doing the same thing. We're sinking into the words of the past and in the process coming to something greater than themselves. And that indeed is part of the modern experience because it's only since the invention of printing and universal literacy that the reading of novels and literature could take place. Mm. And I think our minds are not just filled with scripture nowadays. They are filled with Dostoevsky, with Tolstoy, with George Eliot, the Brontes, for example, and the poets, the great poets. Yes, yes, yes. Poetry is, uh, we don't even have time on that, but poetry yeah. is in itself very connected with scripture and in, and in its... Yes. unique form and they they infuse our reading of scripture too so that because we, we don't just read hear the sacred texts which is all many people could do in the past but we've got access to these mm. other forms of deep insight and life transforming spirituality in these great writers that brings us to the close of this wonderful conversation karen armstrong i so much enjoyed having you on think again I've enjoyed it too. Thank you very much, Jason. And that's it for this week's episode. And we'll have two more weekly episodes in 2019. Next up, it's renowned Zen teacher and poet Norman Fisher. And the following week, I'm with audio storytelling wizard Jad Abumrad of Radiolab and the new podcast Dolly Parton's America. Then we'll go quiet for a few weeks. Time to recharge and reflect before the first year of a new decade. Let me know whatever's on your mind. You can email me through my website, jasongotts.com, and I'll see you next week.